0: Welcome again to RUF. My name is Scott Bihan. I am one of the interns here. Um, two quick announcements as I do this. The first, if you are a freshman, we are going to the fair this Thursday night. So I know as of right now we have like 10 people who come every week and said they're going to go. And it's actually college ID night, so you can go free. Um, so right now we have like 10 going. We would love to make that number 11. So, uh, I mean, if you 12, would work. Uh, so, if you're interested, I think we're going to meet afterwards. Yeah, we're going to meet afterwards, maybe up here in this corner. So, if you're interested, come and talk to us so we can figure out carpools so that not that many people are having to pay to park. Uh, second announcement is, I was thinking about what to wear tonight, and I remember Will Barber told me that... Um, you have to dress the way that you want to. He told me some sort of uh, advice, and so I got rid of the t-shirt, and I went with these pants right here, and I firmly regret it. Um, I don't remember the last time I felt this uncomfortable. Um, so thank you Will. Uh, on a more serious note, if you've been with us a semester, you know we've been going through the Book of Romans, so essentially what Sammy did the first few weeks is he went through the first three chapters of Romans And what happens in the first three chapters of Romans is Paul essentially takes every single human being and puts them in the courtroom and puts them on trial before God. The presupposition being that God is a holy, righteous God, that God is who he says he is, and that he has the right to judge people according to his holy standard. And what he says is that every single human being has been put on trial before God. He says Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised and you've been condemned, you have been found guilty in the eyes of God. And not only that, you he says, he comes to the end of Romans 3, chapter 3, and he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So essentially what he's saying is no matter how good you try to be, you cannot save yourself. You are born sinful. You are born into a sinful world. There's no way you can save yourself. And actually what you deserve is death, and you deserve hell. But he doesn't leave us there. He goes into chapter 4, which is what we were supposed to talk about last week, And obviously we were um, flooded out. I think Sammy might come back to that in the next few weeks. But Paul comes and he starts talking about justification. Essentially what he says is if you believe in Jesus as Savior, if you believe Jesus really is this man who he said that he was, and he came down 2,000 years ago from heaven and he became man and he lived a perfect holy life, said he might die for sinners. If you believe in him by faith, (laughs) by grace through faith, if you believe in him, what happens is Jesus shows up in this courtroom and he says, no. My life for his, his life for mine. And what he does is he not only takes your guilty verdict, he literally goes and he goes, he takes death, he goes into hell, so that you might be declared innocent in the eyes of God. Not only are you declared innocent at this point, you're actually given Jesus' righteousness from his holy life, so that when God looks at you, he now sees a perfect, holy, righteous man or woman. And at that moment, you are adopted into the kingdom of God. You become a son or daughter of the king, and that cannot change. Once you believe, that is a once and for all thing. That is justification. You are saved, and that cannot change. He's going to go on to talk about sanctification, which is the idea, uh, just like adoption here. Um, a couple years ago, it was probably five or six years years ago at this point, my wife's family adopted a boy from Ukraine named Sasha. And if you've heard this illustration before, just bear with me, we'll get over it. Um, <laughs> Sanctification is the fact, so they adopt this boy named Sasha, they go through the whole process, they have to pay a ton of money, go through a lot of hard stuff, I think they had to spend six weeks in Ukraine, and they get to the courtroom in the final day, and what happens is the judge finally stamps it, and he seals it, and at that point in time, and forevermore, his name was Sasha Nyman, and there's nothing that could be changed to make him any less Nyman than he was at that point. Was he like a Naiman? Did he know how the Naimans acted? Did he know how to talk like a Naiman? Did he look like a Naiman? Did he know the quirks of the Naimans? Did he know if the Naimans ate together around the family table or went out every single night, as all families should? Did he know all of these things? Did he look like a Naiman at all? No, he, he didn't even speak English. He didn't know anything. But that didn't change the fact that he was a Naiman. And gradually, and this is what sanctification is, he comes back to America. He begins to speak English. He begins to talk like a Nyman. He begins to know how the Nymans work. And that's what sanctification is. Has justification is a once-and-for-all event. You are declared righteous. You are given Jesus' righteousness. But you don't know how to act like a Christian yet. And so you're learning day by day and hour by hour and minute by minute what it looks like to be a Christian. And this is something I used to struggle with because I used to think this is a thing where every single time I sin, as I dealt heavily with addictions and the other sinful patterns... I thought every time I sinned, especially these like drastic, dramatic sins that you might have some experience with, I thought every single time that Jesus had to come back into the courtroom with me and that every single time I was being dragged back into the courtroom and put on trial before God again. And that's not what justification is. Justification is, no, this is a once-and-for-all event, and that one time Jesus stands in there, and once you believe in him, he declares you innocent and he declares you righteous, and there's nothing that can happen to change that. So it's great that Paul doesn't leave us in the dourness of chapters 1 through 3, so we could do that. And then we finally come through to Romans chapter 5. And so tonight we're just going to look at the first five verses. There's a lot of different topics that uh, we could cover just in the first five verses. But tonight we're just going to specifically deal with suffering. And we're going to deal with our personal suffering. It probably hits a little bit harder if anybody in here was affected at all by the floods. Um, And so I just want to qualify it before we even start by saying... I understand that everything I say tonight and as I share a little bit about my story and about my personal dealings with suffering that it's a really easy thing to do to take your suffering and want to compare it to somebody else's because you can always find somebody else who's suffering worse than you are and I get that. I get that there are people in Africa dying. I get that there are major crises throughout the world that that is happening and God really cares about those things and God is sovereign over those things but I also get that God knows you and cares about you and loves you as an individual, and so as minor, as minute as you might think your suffering is, or as much as you want to cast that off so you don't have to talk to anybody about it, God cares deeply about your own intimate suffering, he knows your suffering, he's with you in your suffering, and he wants you to begin to deal with your suffering. So keep that in mind as we go, Uh, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Romans chapter 5, and we will start in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's all the stuff we were just talking about, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice and hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. If you pray with me, then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for what your word has to say to us about suffering. We thank you that you have a son who is well acquainted with suffering, and well acquainted with grief that we can run to in our weakness and our brokenness. I pray that you'll help us bring our suffering to the forefront tonight, so we can begin to deal with it, and begin to see how your gospel speaks into it, and how you want to heal us, and how you want us to bring... How do you want to bring this to yourself? It's an interesting doing. So a little bit about my story, when I was talking about my interactions with suffering. I grew up in Rock Hill. It's about an hour north of here. Um, it's pretty irrelevant to what I'm about to say. I, uh, <laughs> For the first 21 years of my life, I was pretty much isolated from any sort of suffering. I dealt with the normal high school stuff, boyfriend, girlfriend, drama, Um Sports, bad relationship with parents, stuff like that. Stuff anybody goes to. And again, God cares about those little things too. But in terms of like dealing with any sort of major suffering, I was fortunate enough to never have to deal with any of that. Then I don't know what happened. I turned 21, and it seems like I'm 23 now, so it seems like the past two years of my life have just been thing after thing after thing of suffering that God has brought into my life. And I found out. That even though I became a Christian my senior year of high school, and I was probably a Christian three or four years before these things started happening, I was very ill-equipped to deal with suffering. And I think um, a lot of the first things that happened aren't really things that I can share publicly. But it all culminated this summer. My wife Carly and I found out that we were pregnant. Um, so after the initial shock and surprise of it, we got really, really excited about it. Um, I understand that's like not like the cultural thing to do now is like get married young and have a baby. You want to like live your life and be like 40 and get married and do all that stuff. And if that's you, that's great. But there's also just something like really exciting and like heavy about the idea of like bringing life into the world. And so like we got really excited about it. We were talking about, man, is it going to be a boy or a girl? Um, What's the nursery going to look like? What are we going to name it? And so probably about three or four weeks of that, and we were just super, super happy about it. And there was one night, um, Carly's stomach started hurting, and we ended up in the emergency room, and she ended up having a miscarriage. And I remember, like, over the next few days, sitting in my dining room, and it was just like the culmination of that and all these other things that happened before that. I was really just sitting in the dining room, and man, I was furious. I didn't know what to do, and like, if you could hear my conversation with God at that point, it sounded something exactly like what the elder, brother, elder son and the prodigal son story says to God. I mean, I'm literally sitting there just thinking, like, God, what the heck are you doing here? Like... I work for a campus ministry that, I mean, this isn't, like, a glamorous job. Like, I, my job is to, like, talk to students about you every day. And I don't do a great job of it, but, like, I mean, I try. Uh, I mean, I go to church every week. I read my Bible all the time. Like, are you freaking kidding me at this point? Like, I'm done with all of this. Like, this suffering, this is just stupid. Don't you have a better way to handle things than this? it was just like a clear picture into my heart, once I got past all that, uh, coming back the next few days and just realizing, man, I, I, I don't have any ability to like endure, like Romans 5.3 talks about. I don't have character in this stuff. I'm not equipped to deal with suffering because I don't understand suffering. I don't understand this. And more than that, I love the gifts of the Father, and I love comfort, and I love security, and I love all of these things, and I love just being content at home more than I love Jesus, and more than I love what Jesus has as a plan for mine and Carly's life. So I began to read these books about suffering, and it just so happened that this was coming up, and so I asked Sammy if this is what I could preach about for my sermon this semester. And so I come to these verses in chapter 5, and it gets to verse 3, and Paul says, more than that, more than all these things he's talked about so far, we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul is well acquainted with suffering, and he is not running away or shying away from the idea of suffering. This is a man who actually didn't really suffer at all until he became a Christian. If you know anything about Paul, before he became a Christian, his name was Saul. He was well-respected in the Jewish community. He was just living a pretty good life, persecuting Christians, killing them. (coughs) On the road to Damascus, he's blinded. He becomes a Christian. And from that point forward, he endured a lot. suffering he was shipwrecked he was imprisoned he was beaten he dealt with a serious physical affliction most of his life like this is a guy who didn't really start suffering until he became a christian so i think that's one of the first things we have to do is we have to understand not cynically this idea we have to understand that part of being a christian is knowing that we're probably going to suffer and we actually kind of have to come to expect suffering because nowhere in scripture, nowhere in God's word does it do to us, does he say, man, being a Christian, that's really going to take away all your suffering. Being a Christian, I'm just going to give you everything that you want. You can live your life exactly the way you want to live it. And I'm just not going to intervene in anything. But if you really need me, I'll be up here and you can talk to me. It's actually the kind of opposite of what he says is going to happen. Like part of being a Christian means that you are going to face suffering. Because we live in a sinful world. We live in a broken world. Non-Christians are going to face suffering too. And so what happens if you're not equipped to endure suffering? You just endure tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And eventually you lose hope, or you go insane, or you become numb, or you become broken to all of these ideas. And so it's just essential that we have to learn to endure suffering. We have to learn what God has to say to us about suffering. Paul doesn't say we rejoice despite our sufferings. He doesn't say we rejoice in spite of our sufferings. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. I read a story recently about a lady who is out next to a pool with a two-year-old baby, and something happened where the baby ended up falling in the pool, and the baby drowned. And somehow the pastor got over there pretty quickly, and one of the first things he did is he went up to the mom, and the mom literally looked at him and asked if they could see him the doxology. And she literally just sang, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. In the midst of this unspeakable, unthinkable, unthinkable, Tragedy. It was a two-year-old baby who had died, and she was sitting here singing God's praises. How do we, in the midst of our suffering, because every single one of us in here is enduring some sort of suffering. Maybe your parents are getting divorced. Maybe you are going through a bad breakup. Maybe you're dealing with eating disorders or addictions, or I don't know what you're dealing with. Maybe you are somebody who lost your home or your business or your car or any of these things in the flood. Or maybe you know somebody who lost one of these things in the flood. It just seems so crazy to think that someone could have this happen and rejoice in the midst of this. So how do we come to do that? So the key um, that I found, if you look right after that in verse 3, what is the first word that comes after that? And this is point number one. It's the word knowing. Throughout Paul's epistles, throughout Paul's letters, Paul is heavy on the idea of that you actually have to use your brain and you have to use your mind to start to understand the gospel, to start to understand what God has to say to us about suffering. If your Christian life is based solely on these emotional experiences and these emotional highs, if you're going just from retreat to retreat or conference to conference or Sunday to Sunday, just like not feeling like a Christian unless you have these emotional highs, you're missing out on a lot of what God has to offer. And this isn't me standing here as somebody in RUF is like, oh man, we don't raise our hands when we're seeing, and we don't really show any emotion whatsoever, because, I mean, that's really not great either. But, I mean, there is an intellectual side to this where you can't just rely only on your emotions. Because, yes, the Holy Spirit is real, and he is living, and he is active, and he works in and through your emotions. But also the gospel is something that's intellectual. You have to start to understand what's going on. And so, like, let's just think big picture. What If we're going to know the gospel, if we're going to know what God has to say to us. Let's think big picture. The first thing that we hold as truth in RUF as Christians is that God is the creator. And we're not here to argue about evolution versus creation. We're just here to simply say God is creator. And what the Bible says is that God created man and woman in his own image. And part of what that means is when God created you, he created you in such a way that you are not going to be fully happy. You're not going to be fully satisfied. In a sense, you're not going to be fully human, and you're not going to be fully you, the you that you were designed to be, until God is at the center of your life, until God is what you treasure the most, until God is what satisfies you the most, until God is the one that you are devoted to and that you treasure and your affections run to the most. And that's what we hold as truth. The second truth we hold is that we, as human beings, are disoriented. It goes back to the whole idea. We are born into sin. And from the moment we are born, John Calvin says, our hearts are factories of idols, which just means we try to find anything other than God and try to make that the number one thing in our lives. We try to find every other thing and love it more than we love God. How do you know if you're loving something more than you love God? Well, start to ask yourself, what do you devote most of your time to? What do you devote most of your thought life to? What do you devote... Your emotions to? What do you devote your affections to? What is the one thing that if you're going to say, just don't take away this thing from me, and if that thing's not God, that is the thing that your heart is disoriented, that your heart is loving more than it loves God? And so you put these truths together, and so what's the real truth of the matter here? The truth of the matter is anything that you love more than God, anything that you are putting in the place of God, is keeping you from truly being you from truly being human from truly being satisfied and so we go from there isn't it the most loving thing that god can do for you is to reorient your life until he is the thing at the center of your life i mean that that can sound cruel that can sound vindictive but it's not because when you understand that you are made to love God, when you are made to treasure God, when you are only truly actually going to be happy and you're just going to stop searching for all these other things to satisfy you when God is at the center of your life, then yes, the most loving thing he can do is to reorient your life in such a way that he is at the center. Another blunt way to say it is he, isn't the most loving thing he can do for you is take away all these things from you that you love more than you love Jesus? If you're spending most of your time and most of your energy right now on your boyfriend or girlfriend, more than you're spending on Jesus then there's a sense in which the most loving thing he can do for you is to make that relationship end. And it's not because he hates you and it's not because he hates your boyfriend or girlfriend not because he wants you to be unhappy it's because he loves you and he wants to bring you back to be the you that you were created to be the next part of uh, actually there's a book I read a few months ago. or actually it's one of my favorite books I read it a couple years ago and I reread it a few months ago and it's just this idea of God reorienting our lives. And so it's a story, it's a book called A Severe Mercy. It's uh, actually um, C.S. Lewis, it's one of his, it's a Christian theologian from the 50s and 60s, I think. It's one of his friends named Sheldon von Auken. And he writes this book, and essentially in the book, he tells a story of him and his wife. They met at a pretty young age, and they started dating, and they got married. And they essentially made these vows to each other, like even past their wedding vows. There was just a vow that I am never going to love anyone or anything more than I loved you. If, if you're like me, like a hopeless romantic, it's really just, just cool, like first 150 pages, things turn pretty bad after that. But the first 150 pages are pretty great because, I mean, they have this life together where they travel all over the world, they go to school together, anything that one person reads, the other person has to read, they listen to things together, they live on a sailboat together for a few months... I mean, they have this great relationship together, and it feels like nothing could be better than that. So what happens is they end up at the school in England, and they start reading, actually, they start reading C.S. Lewis books, and gradually they both start to become a little bit interested in Christianity, and it ends up where she becomes a Christian before he does, and what happens is she actually starts to love Jesus and to love God more than she loves her husband, which is actually just like crazy shit because it's actually... When this happens, she's actually more free to love her husband. She's actually more free to selflessly sacrifice herself to her husband when her center, when her core, when everything about her loves God. But that's not really the point. The point is she begins to love Jesus more than she loves her husband, and her husband becomes a little bit bitter about it, but he's still interested in Christianity. He's still trying to learn. And what happens is she gets sick really, really quickly and dies. And so he's left at this point where he's kind of a Christian, but not really sure. And man, he is super bitter, and he is super pissed, and he does not understand how God could do this to him. Takes away this love. At first, he took her away in life while she was still alive and made it where she loved him more than she loved her husband. And then she actually just, took, he, and then she actually just died. And she was gone. And it's cool because then it's like, he's, all, he's writing this all 20 to 30 years later, and as he's writing, he starts talking about this idea. It's where the name of the book comes, called a severe mercy. And he begins to see that it's actually the most merciful thing God could have done for him because after this, after his wife died, he actually became a Christian. He actually began to understand what his wife was going through. He actually began to understand what it meant to love Jesus, what it meant to have a life devoted to pleasing Jesus, what it meant to have a life centered on Jesus. And it's not that he didn't miss his wife anymore. It's not that it didn't hurt that he lost his wife anymore. And that's why he called it a severe mercy because sometimes God, God's mercy, I mean, it can hurt. It can be weighty, it can be heavy, it can be hard to deal with. So it comes back to the fact, you have to know that you have a God who loves you. You have to know that you have a God who's willing to send his only son to die for you. You have to know that you have a God that you can trust. That whatever he's doing in your life is meaningful. That he has a reason for everything that he's doing in your life. And that's where we come to the second point. So then, what, like, just ask the broad question. Well, then, why, like, why do we suffer? Why do we have to suffer? Why does it have to be this way? And, I mean, this is what verse 3 and 4 say. Suffering is productive. That's what he says. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. We have to trust that God is working <laughs> in and through our suffering. What's the goal? What is his ultimate goal in our suffering? He wants us to look more like Jesus. If he's going to use suffering as the main tool in his own son's life, who he loves more than he loves anything, he could not possibly love him more. How can we expect that he's not going to use suffering in our lives? He says suffering is meant to produce endurance. Endurance is the ability to withstand the pressures and the tribulations and the trials of the world. Sinclair Ferguson says you can't learn to endure in your Christian life when it is surrounded by cotton wool. It's this idea, suffering is going to come, and we have to be prepared. And the only way we're going to be able to be prepared is to understand these things that are happening and know that we can endure because we have a Savior and we have a God who loves us and who is sovereign over these things that are happening. It says endurance produces character, character being the idea of testedness, character being the idea of, like, proven worth. Um, It's interesting you see these billboards. As you drive, I think it's especially like as you drive down, I think I've always seen them when we're driving to Disney World, but there's these billboards on the side of the road that says, Jesus will fix your problems. Or like, Jesus can fix your problems. You know what I'm talking about? Man, those are like the worst things you've ever seen. Because that's essentially like nowhere in scripture does Jesus say, I'm going to fix your problems. That's not at all what he says. Because Jesus, yes, he cares, but it's not that he doesn't care about you. He cares about making you look more and more like him. He cares about making you look more and more like the person that you were designed to be so that you can ultimately be happy. Because he knows a lot more than you do what's going to make you whole, what's going to make you happy, what's going to make you ultimately able to endure these terrible things that happen. And then lastly, he says character produces hope. It comes back to the idea of Jesus as the vine dresser in um, the book of John. And why does he say that he, he uses the picture of like Jesus as the vine dresser of cutting off limbs and cutting off vines, and I have not the least idea about what vine dressing has, or what it is, or like how it actually works. But I know that he says the point of the vine dressing is so that, you can, so that the vine will bear more fruit. And so what we have to do is trust that not a single stroke of Jesus' vine dressing tool, Shooters, We have to trust that Jesus shears not a single stroke of them is going to be wasted. Last question is, where are your priorities? You have to understand that God does have a different set of priorities than you. And if your priority doesn't become looking more like Jesus, then when these tragedies happen, when these bad things happen, when you go through suffering, it's going to be, it's just going to be something you don't really understand. And you're going to be stuck, just like I was in the dining room, looking up And just thinking, like, God, how could you do this to me? Like, why would you do this to me? I heard a story uh, a couple weeks ago, and I decided to steal it, because it's a pretty good illustration. Um, There's there's still active shepherds in the world today. Um, So there's these shepherds, especially in, I think it's the coast of England. (laughs) And so what happens with the sheep is they have this, like, big tub of disinfectant. And what happens is they actually have to take the sheep and they have to dunk the sheep into this big tub of disinfectant. And the point of the disinfectant is it goes in their wool and it like protects them, protects them from viruses and all these other things. But the sheep absolutely hate it. They squeal and they scream. I don't know what noise. I always said it, bad, but they're like panic noise. I don't know what that one is. They're getting dunked in this water. Is the shepherd doing this to them because he hates them? because he thinks it's kind of funny to, like, terrify the sheep. Shepherd's doing this because he loves the sheep, because he wants to protect the sheep at all, because he wants to do everything he has to do to protect the sheep. It comes back to the idea we have a shepherd who cares for us. We have a shepherd who knows what he's doing, and even at the time, if it hurts, if it doesn't make sense, if it feels like we're being dunked in a pool of water and just held under there till we're going to die. God cares about us. God cares about you. He cares deeply about you. And he is going to use your suffering to work in it and through it. So if you can't see how he's using it now, hold out hope. Pray and ask for endurance, ask for character, ask for hope. Because he's already given us the ultimate hope in his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight about suffering. pray that you'll uh, help us to learn to endure. We pray that you will fill us and make us uh, men and women of character so that we can go through this world trusting that you love us and that you care for us. as you.